Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 220 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into the episode after a word from our sponsors. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first, and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. For the first time in a while, I have quite a bit of fun travel coming up this summer, and I'm really counting on Macy's to help round out my wardrobe for some of these trips. Right now, I've got my eye on a new bag and sandals from Coach and some super cute tops and dresses from Macy's On 34th brand. And you can never really have too many pairs of sunglasses. And there are a lot of cute options to explore right now. If you need a little help getting your summer look together, shop at Macy's.com slash own your style. You may have heard that most people who are black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. 
Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Earlier this week marked the ending of the Tokyo Olympics. And there was no shortage of stories about Black women athletes both leading up to and during the Games. To help us dig a little deeper into some of the ways that gender and race intersected during the Olympics and through sports history, today I'm joined by Dr. Leisha Carter. Dr. Carter identifies as a feminist sports psychology practitioner, and her work addresses historical and contemporary representations of Black women's strength, culturally sensitive health and sports psychology approach for people of color, and gendered racism in sport. Dr. Carter is an associate professor of exercise psychology at the intersection of racial and gender equity at Temple University. And in 2019, she published Feminist Applied Sports Psychology from Theory to Practice, an edited text addressing intersectional feminist, womanist, and Black feminist praxis in sports psychology. Dr. Carter and I chatted about the ways that gendered racism shows up in sports how the strong Black women trope impacts athletes, how athletes are using platforms like social media to tell more of their story, and how athletes like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka are ushering in a change about how athletes take care of themselves. If there's something that resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session. Here's our conversation. I'm just so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you because I feel like in like an academics and a psychologist life, there are a few times when like the work that you do kind of comes to life, right? In such a big, mm-hmm. big way and like on such a global scale. So I know that you have been incredibly busy in the past couple of weeks and would love for you to just start by like sharing, you know, your thoughts about all of the things that have unfolded as it relates to Black women specifically in the Olympics. Gosh, yeah. I mean, this is one of those moments, right, where you're like 10 years of your research and you're like, I've been telling y'all. <laughs> I have been saying. Tried to tell y'all. Tried to told y'all. Ain't nobody been listening. Now you're listening. Now you're listening. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's the feeling. That's honestly the feeling where you're like, it's definitely a full circle moment, not just for myself, but for other researchers and practitioners whose work is deeply at this intersection of the ways in which these kind of racist and sexist stereotypes and tropes play out in performance-based domains. And seeing the way it's kind of lived, it's just kind of been demonstrated. It's like, this is what we've been saying all along, and this is how it impacts wellness. This is how it impacts Black women's wellness. It's right here, right in front of us. For us to see the way Black women athletes have to navigate both racist and sexist oppressive systems in sport at the Olympic level, I think has been very, very interesting because that is really the world stadium, the largest platform in sport. And so, you know, looking at the Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, even Allison Felix, mm-hmm. and the ways in which they've had to navigate sports throughout their entire career, but particularly this year, I think is quite interesting because 
not just with COVID, but it's also the sum of a year and a half of racial reckoning that all Black women have absorbed, but particularly Black women athletes. And so the Olympics being a space in which they've kind of had to navigate this past year and then perform, being a representative of the Black community and also being a representative of Black women whom we still haven't gotten justice for Breonna Taylor. And so it's just quite interesting. It's an interesting time in sport. Mm-hmm. So I want to step back for a little bit just to kind of give our community an understanding of like what sports psychologists generally do. And then specifically, you know, with the combination of you being a sports psychologist, but also your specific research focus, what that work looks like for you. Yeah, for sure. So sports psychology is a very diverse field. It includes researchers and practitioners, both individuals who might be trained clinically within the mental health field and work with athletes along the spectrum of mental health and mental illness as it intersects within sport and athleticism, as well as researchers and non-clinically trained individuals who work more around the domain of sport and performance. So what are the conditions that help excite and stimulate elite athletic performance in exercisers? And then you have individuals who are also, and this is a little bit more kind of where I fit in, I fit in kind of multiple places, but are also interested around just exercise and and physical health and well-being. What are the ways in which exercise kind of helps support just overall health and well-being? And how are we as a sport and exercise community kind of bringing exercise and sport to everybody in order for them to engage in sport for all? And so you have a kind of a multitude of diversity of folks within the sport and performance psychology realm. My research really looks at gendered racism in sport, exercise, and health domains. I'm most interested in the ways in which sport and exercise both helps and hinders physical activity and sport engagement among girls and women of color, particularly Black women. And when we look historically and contemporarily, What are the things, what are the conditions that have been most helpful for sport engagement? What are the things that over time might cause Black women and girls to leave sport and physical activity? And how do we kind of change those trends? And of course, it's a multitude of factors. It's no one particular factor. It's a multitude of things. My research and my work also looks at what are ways in which we can train the next generation of sport and exercise psychology practitioners to be much more culturally responsive to the needs of women of color, but particularly Black women and girls when it comes to sport and performance and physical activity. And then I'm also just generally interested in just motivation. You know, what are the things that are involved in increasing motivation and engagement in sport and physical activity amongst diverse populations? Again, particularly women of color and Black women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, you were the perfect person to talk to about this because of your research, right? So you looking at gender and sexism as it relates to sports. And I think we saw a lot of examples of that, you know, with just the Olympics this year. So we had Shakari Richardson's suspension, and then there was the whole ban on like the Afro swimming caps and Brianna McNeil missing her drug tests after recovering from an abortion. And so it seems like the Olympics committee set 
against these supposedly neutral kinds of like rules. But then we do see it feels like at least black women kind of being unduly penalized by some of this. Can you talk about like how those rules that are supposed to be neutral really do kind of harm black women specifically? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, the first thing here that comes up for me is that these rules are neutral for white men. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they're not neutral for Black women and for women of color. And that speaks to the lack of diversity in governing bodies, that those who are the decision makers and those who are the gatekeepers when it comes to these governing bodies in sport, in large part, those that sit on the boards are men and white people. There's very little representation of women of color and then particularly Black women. So when they're creating these policies and these regulations, it does seem neutral for people whom it just wouldn't affect, and which is an issue. But then when we think about the, the issue with the swim cap, yeah, I'm sure it's quite neutral for white men because they don't have to think about natural hairstyles, mm-hmm. but it's actually quite political for um, Black women who have natural hair who swim and need something that's, you know, fitting and also can cut through the water for them when they're swimming at high rates of speed in the water. Yeah, and I think even based on your earlier comment about studying some of the reasons why women leave sports, right? And thinking about like how many, like myself personally, I do not know how to swim. I don't think it's like all the way related to hair. I also like just grew up in the country where there weren't like lots of access to like, where would you swim? But I have heard that as a huge reason why like a lot of Black women have not swam because, you know, if you just get your hair done, like you're not trying to get in the pool, right? And so these kinds of considerations around like caps that would protect hair and those kinds of things are something that other people would not necessarily consider. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the economics of swimming from a Black woman's perspective is a very real thing that people really do have to attach to. I'm a fish in water and I don't (laughs) swim because like you, you know, I have to allow my blowouts to last, you know, and I prefer, you know, sometimes I like to wear my hair natural. Sometimes I like it to be blown out, but that's my own personal preference. And I don't want water to be a variable to something that I've decided for my hair to be, you know, today or tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But the other thing here is let's talk about kind of environmental racism for a second and the ways in which that impacts sport participation. I did a study that looked at the strong black woman archetype and its relationship to physical activity amongst women. And I interviewed women in a rural area of Michigan. And one thing that they said was on top of being able to having to juggle a lot of different responsibilities and that playing a role and then being able to engage in physical activity, they said, we don't have any sidewalks. So even if they wanted to start a walking group or just to walk, there actually isn't anywhere for them to walk. So they would have to walk in the street if they wanted to use walking as their form of physical activity. And so that was a very real issue that they themselves cannot fix. And oftentimes when we're thinking about sedentary behavior, we often put the responsibility on the individual in this particular society. We say they're the ones that aren't engaging in physical activity because they don't want to be active. And we fail to look at the built environment around them, particularly in rural and urban areas that have been historically ignored and marginalized. So this area is predominantly Black. And there's just no sidewalk. So they say, hey, how am I going to walk? 
The other thing was that there was a gym that had subsidized memberships. However, there was one bus that they could take to get to that gym and it only ran in the morning and in the evening. So when you think about their schedule and things like that, it just wasn't possible to be able to go to this gym and to maybe use the equipment and things like that. All these things contribute to sedentary behavior, physical activity. But when we take a step back, it's racism. It's just environmental racism, structural racism. When we know that there's greater availability and much more highly resourced areas where sidewalks and transportation are not an issue for people who are not black and brown to engage in physical activity. Mm. And can you say more, Dr. Carter, about like how the strong black woman archetype kind of impacted this behavior? What did you learn from that study? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) a lot. Um, You know, what I learned from that particular study and what I did in that study was I interviewed individuals in that rural area of Michigan, but then I interviewed about 40 women all throughout New York City, Bronx, Brooklyn, Lower Manhattan, all black women. And what I learned is that there's a multitude of variables that are contemporarily are built into this archetype of the strong black woman. Of course, we know a woman that's resilient, that can make a way out of no way is part of the strong black woman, but that these women were also holding on to a lot of other things that were challenges for them to be able to engage in sport and physical activity. One primary one was trauma, that many of the women experienced a variety of different forms of trauma, whether it was intimate partner violence, community-based violence, loss of a loved one, also migrating from one country to the U.S. And still working through that trauma and processing that trauma was a barrier for them to even think about engaging in physical activity. Many of them said it was a world away. Like, why would I be thinking about engaging in regular physical activity or sport when I'm still working through the loss of my son who was murdered due to community-based violence? Or I'm still grieving, you know, the loss of this person or whatever it might be. And so when we're thinking about what, how the strong Black woman, or when we're thinking about working with Black women and what might be a potential barrier or challenge for them to engage in regular physical activity, understanding what Black women might be holding and the ways in which they might be socialized into the strong Black woman is extremely important. Two other things that came out of that study amongst many was that the strong black woman ideal was something that was passed down generationally, not just from mother to daughter, but from father to daughter, from mother to son. And so it was very deeply ingrained into the psyche of the black community and a idea that deeply is glorified amongst many different actors within the black community, making it quite hard to disrupt. So not only is it something that's reinforced by the larger white supremacist society, but it's something that's also glorified internally within our own community, making it hard to counteract. There is this theme around anxiety and mental health related to being a strong Black woman. And that I think that's also due to role strain taking on so many different responsibilities and that delayed self-care and how that impacts just your general well-being and, and mental health. Mm. 
More from my conversation with Dr. Carter after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve, and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in store to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API Scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. 
Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Are you ready for a family vacation you will never forget? One where anything is possible? If so, it's time to plan your getaway to sunny Orlando. Orlando really is the ultimate family destination. It's time to break out the matching bedazzled t-shirt, dust off your go-to dad jokes, and prepare for exciting thrills, never-ending food festivals, and fresh new dining experiences, and so much more. Of course, you know that Orlando is the theme park capital of the world, with 15 of the world's top theme parks and water parks all in one place, and beyond the parks, there is also excitement and family fun around every corner. If you're ready to plan an epic Orlando vacation, but you're not sure where to start, you can talk one-on-one with one of their Visit Orlando vacation planners. In Orlando, anything is possible. If you can imagine it, plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. So, Dr. Carter, I feel like there are so many places I want to go based on what you just shared. So something that, you know, I have been thinking about, but you just reminded me of is this whole idea around trauma and how we also saw that play out in the Olympics. Right. So we found out later that Sha'Carri Richardson's mother had passed. And, you know, it sounds like a part of how she was coping with that grief was through marijuana. And then we also later found out that Simone Biles um, had an aunt that passed while she was in Tokyo. And. And that she was also carrying this experience of being a victim of sexual assault, right? And so, you know, I I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, we know just on a regular basis, like how we just try to go to work from day to day dealing with a traumatic experience. But then you're, like you said, on this world stage, the world stadium expected to perform with these traumatic experiences kind of under your belt. Mm. So, where do I start here? Because part of the strong black woman this image is that it's it's a very controlling image that is used to tell Black women how they're supposed to behave, right? Mm -hmm. That if you're not behaving like a strong Black woman, then you are not engaging in the appropriate form of Black womanhood. And the reason why I'm starting my response that way is because I think it sheds some light into one, the criticism that Simone Biles received, as well as some of the side-eyeing that Shakari Richardson received, right? So if the strong Black woman, the ways in which it's used to control Black femininity and Black womanhood is that you are supposed to absorb trauma, absorb the hardships of life, and wear it in some form of kind of mass grace, some form of grace. And that is a badge of glory a badge of honor, then the moment that you say, I don't want this badge, then that means that you're not being a a woman. You're not being a a graceful Black woman. Then that's the problem. So when it comes to Simone Biles and Shikari Richardson, you see Simone Biles saying, look, I'm an athlete. I'm a performer. One of the things I like about Simone Biles is that she's very clear her profession is an athlete. And there's so many other aspects to her that are outside of her as an athlete in this privileged profession. And so in understanding that, she says, look, my, my role as an athlete is not to assume this idea of being a strong Black woman and to persevere through the pain that I'm holding right now 
as well as this narrative that I'm supposed to be the mammy of all of the survivors and all of the victims of USA Gymnastics. That is not my role here. And I am actually feeling in this moment the kind of sum of all of that right now in the Olympics. And it's time for me to take a step back. That is her being a human being and just living in her humanity. But unfortunately, what the strong Black woman trope and ideal does is it, it indignifies Black women and it doesn't allow them to live in their humanity. So when Simone Biles does this, people who see her through that lens are confused. Mm. They, I think a few things happen. I think they say, wait, you're bionic. You're not, a, you're vulnerable. You feel things. Wait, you experience trauma. So that first thing happens. And I think a second thing happens is a disbelief that, wait, not only do you experience a form of trauma or not only are you experiencing the twisties or something like that, but are you really, can you really just not push through and do this? Mm -hmm. Because you're bionic and as a superwoman, you're also a fixer. You're someone that just figures it out. Even in the face of so much hardship and challenge, you as a Black woman are designed to figure it out. And you're telling us you can't? I don't believe you. And the same that has happened with Shakari Richardson. You mean that the way that you coped with this news and this situation was with marijuana? No. You're a Black woman. You're just supposed to be able to do things without any additional support. You can just figure it out. And so being held so rigidly in that controlling image, when women, Black women, act outside of it, what happens when people use that lens is that they marginalize them. And we see Shakari Richardson marginalized, and we see Simone Biles criticized and marginalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea that you mentioned earlier, Simone Biles is like, we were all rooting for them, right? Can you talk about like some of that added pressure of feeling mm-hmm. like they have to represent not only the U.S., which has not typically been kind to them, right? But also like, okay, I got to represent the Black community on my back. Gosh, I mean, I think that's the story of Black athletes since the since the creation of sport and the integration of sport in the U.S., mm. the representation that they are the representative of all Black people. And I think for Black women athletes, it is not only I am, there's two things happening. Not only am I representing the Black community and Black women, but I also have to, I also have to navigate this form of classist, racist, and sexist respectability the idea of a graceful Black woman within a system that is reinforcing this, this subtle but aggressive form of ownership of the athlete. Navigating all of this and remaining apolitical. Sport is wonderful at maintaining a space of neutrality. Mm. It's all sport. Like, there's no identity here. There's no identity politics. Sport is where... It's just you and competition and nowhere else. And so Black women have to navigate the pressure, the burden of representing Black community and being tokenized as a Black woman athlete 
yet not being allowed to speak on the very things they're being tokenized for. It's a hard space to be in, a hard place to be in. And like kudos for like Simone Biles, the way in which she navigates it, like I don't even know how she does it, you know? I think we've seen Allison Felix, when she broke her silence with Nike around maternity protections. I mean, I think she said, you know, I had enough of trying to navigate this very oppressive dance and this sport and this industry that is not and never going to love me back. And I think that it really became evident for her when she was pregnant and realized that, hey, I'm not getting any protection for me as a pregnant woman, knowing that the stakes are much higher as a Black woman that's pregnant. And Nike, the most powerful sport company, can't even find ways to protect me. So I think in that realization for Allison, it's probably where you see where she said, you know what, I'm not even going to do this anymore. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Something that it feels like has been really instrumental, at least in in my vantage point, is athletes like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka really using social media and other forms of like new media to kind of control the narrative around what their story is. So have you seen that? Like, do you feel like social media and other kind of spaces of new media have really allowed them to humanize themselves more? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think that social media, Twitter, Instagram, you know, TikTok, I think these have been wonderful mechanisms for athletes to be able to disrupt narratives that really are not authentic to who the athlete is. And I think the story around Naomi Osaka is probably the best example when she says, hey, I'm not going to sit with the media. And initially, the narrative being scripted is that she is being a defiant, young, biracial woman, right? And she then uses social media to say, hey, that's not the case. You know, the media is a trigger for me. And this is why. And I I respect the rules and all that. But this is why. So she's using social media to reshape and disrupt a narrative that was being created, not only by sport media, but unfortunately, by the World Tennis Organization that was also trying to create a narrative that she was not being a cooperative athlete within the organization. I think another thing that social media does is that it helps unify athletes around a number of different political and advocacy-oriented topics. I mean, one thing about sport, again, sport likes to be this apolitical space and this neutral space. So oppression can really survive in silence. And I think that when it comes to athletes using social media, they can connect with each person's story. They can say, wow, you're going through this too? I didn't know because Mm -hmm. I can't share my contract with you. I can't share what this person said to me, right? But now they can use social media and say, yeah, this happened to me, it happened to you. And now let's begin to create a movement for change. I think the perfect example is around the maternity protections. We saw that with Allison Felix and Alicia Matano. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad you touched on like the World Tennis Organizations, you know, kind of the angle they were trying to spin there with Naomi Osaka too. But it also feels like the media just in general, at least more traditional news outlets, it also feels like play a, a real role in shaping these narratives and really kind of playing into this idea of the strong Black woman. Absolutely. I I 100% agree. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the media is really good at crafting a number of different racist, sexist tropes and stereotypes of Black women. I mean, we saw them, I think that was in 2018, when Serena challenged a call. They were very quick to typecast her, and she was actually charactered as an angry Black woman on the tennis court, right? Mm-hmm. Because she was acting outside of, again, what is supposed to be, or what particularly in tennis is supposed to be typecast as a traditional form of femininity. And so, and then for Black women, she's just supposed to just take it, right? And so because she said, no, this is not a, a good call, okay, now we're going to marginalize her and typecast her as an angry, at, attitude Black woman. And so the media does a an unfortunate yet good job of quickly typecasting Black women Black women as some form of oppositional, angry, superhuman, or even at times Jezebeling Black women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of the stereotypes. At all the stereotypes, times, right? Yeah, we're, we're some form of controlled image that they like to play us into, which really just indignifies and does a job of reducing our humanity, if not removing it. Mm-hmm. More from my conversation with Dr. Carter after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve, and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, 
Join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in stores to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. How many times have you arrived in Orlando and suddenly realized you forgot the kids? But then you remember you had no intention of bringing the kids. You are in Orlando to enjoy yourself. It's an amazing opportunity to have fun and experience all the fun Orlando has to offer. Sure, Orlando is known as the theme park capital of the world, but there's so much more to this destination. It's the place where adults can become kids again. And happy hour happens any hour with never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, and outdoor adventures from zip lining to its beautiful natural springs. And of course, fireworks every single night. Plus, you have loads of entertainment options, see unique neighborhoods, and can even visit their blossoming arts and culture. Orlando has everything for an amazing getaway with your loved ones or friends, including exciting thrill rides, lush, lazy rivers, and world-class golf and spas. Yes, there's more to see, do, and experience than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. So, Dr. Carter, you know, I haven't fully formed my thoughts on this, but there's something swirling around in my mind around like resisting these superhuman attributes and like not playing into the strong black woman stereotype, but also balancing that with like how incredible like some black women athletes are. Right. So I think we have seen this both with Simone Biles and historically, if we go back to Soraya Bonnelly. So Mm -hmm. they both, I think, have been penalized for like coming up with these new moves that the Olympics and people don't want them to do. And so they don't grade them the same. And they're like, okay, you're going to get in trouble if you do that. So can you help me think through how do you balance, you know, Because there feels like something racist there also, right? Racist and gendered in that these two women have been able to kind of do things that other people haven't been able to do, but now are penalized for that. I think the first thing is that just thinking about the strong Black woman and this idea of like positioning Black women as superhuman and then connecting it to sport, there's like this line there where when we look at women like Simone Biles, where she's engaging in feats that the average person cannot. So you're kind of like, but she is like 
strong. She's doing things that like she's the only woman in the world that can do it. Probably very few men can do it Mm -hmm. as well. And so there's that. But there's this piece in the book, $40 million slaves, where the author talks about when we think about just racism in sports, there's a, a dissonance that exists within this racist sports society that there is an admiration for the feats that Black athletes can do. And in this context, Black women athletes. So there's this admiration, like, wow, look at what Simone Biles can do. Look at what Serena Williams can do, right? But then there's a resentment. We admire you and we are extracting labor and entertainment from you because you are driving an engine that is profitable right? However, we hate that it's you. Mm. We hate that it's a Black woman. And so we don't know what to do with that. Mm. And so I think that is where we see the underscoring of Simone Biles when she's doing these terrific feats and other athletes as well, where they, you know, don't give her the score. I think for the vault that she did that is named after her, I think they scored it like a six, six and she's like, they've underscored me, but it's on them. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's where they're at. It's this, this dissonance of like, wow, this is done and admiring it, but a deep racist resentment that it's a black woman that's done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation around these rules, right? Because what they say is like, oh, we don't want other people trying this because they could really hurt themselves. But would the rule be the same if like a non-Black athlete had done it? Absolutely not. And I mean, the other thing here is that we have to also look at this through the frame of like also just general femininity, right? Like what does the woman look like who's doing this? Mm-hmm. And I think an example is Caster Semenya, mm-hmm. the South African runner who unfortunately her biology has been policed. And I think we see the same things happen when we look at other black women is with the same underscoring, the same policing of black women's Olympic feats and just general performance occur. They fit more Eurocentric feminine features, Mm -hmm. which would allow, unfortunately, these governing bodies to kind of situate them more to kind of white adjacent athletes and standards. That's a speculation, but something that I wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do wonder too, at what point are we going to get away from looking at people's, like, what are they measuring? I, I don't even remember all the specifics, but when they say, okay, you have too many, you know, like it's too masculine or something, right? Like at what point is that going to be outlawed really as a criteria for being able to participate? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of, we had a long way to go, I think. We, for have, that. we really have a long way to go. I think another issue here, too, is that when we think of Simone Biles and Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka and Allison Felix, I think we also are seeing athletes who are beginning to transcend a system of ownership in sport and being able to attain an element of like, free athletes. And Mm. so that is a quite radical status to have. And I think it's also something that scares, you know, individuals who are in these controlling governing bodies, particularly because they're Black women. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also not lost on me that it feels like a lot of these black women who have done this and like who are kind of leading this movement are largely in individual sports. Right. Like, I feel like this is the kind of thing that you probably would not see. I mean, we don't have female football leagues, but like you couldn't see in the NFL or the NBA. And we saw this even with the WNBA. Right. Like that they were really on the front lines of like a lot of the social justice movements we saw like in the past year or two. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. When the WNBA players were the ones to really first speak out and engage in their different actions around advocacy, they received harsh fines, mm-hmm. harsh, harsh fines, because it's still within the institution of the NBA that they have to navigate collectively. And so I do agree with you that it's a far different for an individual athlete to say no or do the things that they would prefer to do versus to have to really navigate a different type of system. Mm-hmm. So you've already kind of alluded to this, Dr. Carter, but I'd love to just hear you expound a little more about what you feel like this moment in sports with all the things that we've seen and the saying no and setting boundaries. What do you think this means for like Black women's mental health? Yeah, you know, I think the first is that I think in general, I think the world is waking up when it comes to generally like racism and sexism in the world. But I think this particular moment is like a, like, y'all, like, y'all see this, right? Like, you know? And so I think that one, just the aha moments that people are having because just around the racist and sexist oppression that exists and how it's demonstrated in the criticism that Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles received, how people are waking up to that. It's just so crucial. The other thing here is that it speaks to the pressures that athletes experience in general and that athletes need space to be able to institute and and constitute boundaries. This idea that sport is 100% healthy, and I'm not not saying that it's detrimental to health, but that it's a workplace environment and that we need to begin to situate professional sports as a workplace environment. And Mm. for elite athletes, when they say, hey, I need a day off, you know, I need a sick day, then it needs to be treated that way. Not as someone being enslaved to a system that is just that, like this this is not uh, an athlete being enslaved to a system. This is an employee and they're saying that they need a sick day. And so, there needs to be rules and policies that really begin to create a healthy workplace environment for our elite athletes. That way they can care for themselves long-term in a variety of ways. The other thing is that we've got to be able to protect our elite athletes from fans and from media. This idea that they have to engage with media, this idea that they have to perform even at their potential detriment to their own physical and psychological safety is deeply inappropriate. We wouldn't make any other person do that. And so why would we have that for elite athletes seems deeply, deeply, deeply troubling to me and I'm sure everyone else. And so this is a crucial time just when it comes to the institution of professional elite sports. But then when we bring it down to college sports and high school sports, I think this is a great and important time to be talking about psychological health and well-being with youth athletes and high school athletes. That, hey, look at Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and even Michael Phelps. 
like with the conversation about what mental health is, what mental illness is, talking to coaches about having a dynamic way of coaching that supports youth development holistically, particularly for young Black girls. Now is the time to really lean into this because sports should be a place where kids are learning, you know, the A's, B's, and C's of life, you know, sport and life. And if we can bring that to our young Black girls, that way they grow into healthy Black girls, using Simone Biles and the Naomi Osaka as, you know, hey, look, she said no. She said her health first. And you can mm-hmm. say that too. I'm getting chills just even thinking about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Dr. Carter, you already mentioned $40 million slaves as a reference point for some of this conversation. Are there other books or other resources that you would want to offer to the community that they may enjoy kind of based on what you've shared today? Yeah, you know, I got to shout out my book. It is a terrific edited volume, Feminist Applied Sports Psychology from Theory to Practice. In that book, we really run down. There's a section where we're just Black feminist politics and sport, everything we just talked about in this podcast. Also, we go into indigenous space and indigenous practices in sport, as well as the experiences of trans athletes and trans women in sport. So if you're interested in the diversity of sport, but through a feminist, womanist, and Black feminist lens, please pick up the book. It's a great book. Perfect. And where can we find you, Dr. Carter? What is your website as well as any social media handles you'd like to share? You know, I was going to say, you can find me outside, but. (laughs) No, we cannot. (laughs) You can find me at Dr. Lija on Instagram. You can also find me at my nonprofit, which is coalition underscore equity. And also at www.coalitionequity.org. Perfect. We'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Dr. Carter. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. And and thank you for the great conversation and some of the laughs in between. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad Dr. Carter was able to share her expertise with us today. To learn more about her and her work, visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 220. And don't forget to text two of your girls and tell them to check out the episode as well. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, be sure to check out our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the sister circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com slash RTP. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? 
Enter Conair Girl Bomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girl Bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.